Thanks for tuning in to listen to this week's Torah study class. Stay tuned after the Torah study for details on how to stay in touch with this ministry and keep up with all of our content. I hope you enjoy the study. Shalom, everybody. We are back. This is the Torah of Messiah. We are in our Bible survey, survey of the scriptures, and we left off in Shemot chapter 23. We had already covered the messenger that would go before them all the way down to the end of the chapter, but as I remember, we had to do, we had to backtrack because there's this little tiny statement that we skipped, and there, there was, I think there was a bit of a reason that I skipped it even if though I think it was a mental mistake. Um, I knew I wanted to cover it that night, but um, we didn't get time to go back to it. So you shall not see the kid in its mother's milk. What I want you to notice is from chapter 20, where we started, where all the meats were being handed out. They, yes, they were broken down categorically, we looked at, in Shemot chapter 20 in regard to the 10. You remember that? They were they were sort of categorized. These yeah. are either these are the ones that help you love God and these are the ones that help you love man. You remember that? Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh so but what we've noticed since that I think I mentioned it in brief last week is that these are all mixed together. From from chap from the rest of chapter 20 to where we are now, the meets vote the commandments are coming in right on top of each other. You no know, category, no specific. fitting in, fitting in different categories. It's, it's not, God did not do this chronologically. He gave us no particular sequence that we can recognize in regard to, you know, here are the commands that'll, that'll teach you about me. Here are the commands that'll teach you about your fellow man. Here are the commands about the temple. They're all together pretty much, especially in, in Shemot. So um, and the point of that is, I believe that one of the reasons God did that is, is to show you that it's all one law. Mm. All right. It's not, it's not a Torah for the priests and then a Torah for the worshipers and then a Torah for the Jews and then a Torah for the Gentiles. It's not, it's one big body of law. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> so, and so we had, we had a, in the, in this first section of 23, you can see that you'll not follow a multitude to do evil. How, what would you say? Is that a vertical or a horizontal command? That's a horizontal. I believe it's a vertical command. Mm. It's, it's carried out in the horizontal, but it, it, it would, it would not be an offense against mankind to do that. Are you with me? Well, I thought of like mob violence. No, that's this is not that narrow. Mob violence would be would fall under this command, but the command itself is not that narrow because I believe that I believe that you know the uh, the election that we went through was you know a multitude doing error. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the the COVID thing was following a multitude into error. There was all. There, yeah. there, all kinds of things that have gone on, mass hysteria. Yeah. Uh, so it, it goes, it, it doesn't just fit one particular instance of it. Are you with me? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so that would be to me a vertical command. Uh, God does not want me doing that, so I'm not going to do it. 
I don't offend people if I necessarily, if I do that overtly, I'm not hurting people if I do that. In a way you are. So you could say this one kind of goes both ways. If the whole country does something egregious, then it hurts the whole country, especially those who aren't doing it. Right. Right. Uh, but I believe that this is one that God takes very seriously and, and affects our relationship with him. Um, you sh neither shall you bear witness in a cause to turn aside from a multitude to pervert justice. That one kind of sounds horizontal to me. Favor a poor man in his cause. That's actually showing favor to a poor person in his cause. That almost looks like you're doing that guy a favor, but God is saying not to do it. And it's not doing a favor. It's giving him preeminence because he's poor. Or don't enable him. Enabling them, them to do stuff. But I think more importantly than that, it's being unjust just because they're yeah. That's All right. Because okay. right is right, wrong is wrong. That's, that's right. That's showing a favor, right, because of their situation. Right. That's right. very popular in our culture right now. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. It is. So, um, yeah, so, and none of these kind of fit under one roof, right? I mean, all of these commands, they're all over the map in, in who they're dealing with and what they're dealing with, right? Yeah. And then we get down here, and, and, and here's, here's the point. He mixed in commands about the feasts. Mm-hmm. Right on the heels of those other ones. And then he goes back. So here's here's the last one about the feast. And then and then he just says, Don't see the kid in its mother's milk. All right. And some of you have probably heard me explain this because typically people like to ask about it. Um, and I've taught on it periodically over the years. Um Lo tevashel gedi bechalev imo. Lo tevasel, do not seize a small goat, a baby goat, a kid in the milk of its mother. All right. And of course, you guys know that the rabbis have come along and said, okay. This is, to me, this command is one of the best examples of, of the Jewish fence around the Torah. All right. And so for those who haven't heard of that, the rabbis tell us that they deliberately put a fence around the Torah to protect the Jewish people from breaking the Torah. All right. And so what they, what they mean by that is we have given commands in order to keep Jewish people from breaking the commands of God. So they have, the, and they, they confess this. It is a man-made command not to eat a cheeseburger, not to have milk and dairy touch each other. They have a certain time frame where if you eat dairy, you have to wait so many hours before you eat meat. And vice versa, if you eat meat, you have to wait so many hours before you eat dairy. 
Um, they go, some streams of Judaism go to the extreme of you have to have two kitchens. One's a dairy kitchen and one a meat kitchen. Some of them don't go to that extreme, but they have to have a dairy set of dishes and a meat set of dishes down to the silverware. Um, so those are all man-made commands. You do not find that in the scriptures. And all of those commands, every last one of them, are based on this one little guy right here. You shall not see the kid in its mother's milk. So the rabbis have come along and added multiple stipulations based on this one command, and that is their fence. That's part of their fence around the whole Torah. They've done many, many things like that, and they will tell you that they've done it. And in the Talmud, they will tell you, we told God this is the conclusion, this is what we're doing, and this is why we're doing it, and God had to relent. God acquiesced. He gave us the authority. Ours is the authority. His is not. You, our Jewish people, have to listen to the rabbis, and, and it started in the Mishnah. They said, what "Huh? What blasphemy?" Yeah, it is. True. And it started in the Mishnah. The Mishnah. I, I've tried to explain this before to you guys. The Mishnah is the writing down of the customs of the temple. But the problem is, it was written down in the second century by primarily two Jewish rabbis who who started writing the thing. Um who rejected Yeshua, okay? The Mishnah is useful, however, to give us a look, a firsthand look into temple operation because those guys were secondary witnesses. Some of them may have been primary, but if they were primary, they were very young when, when the temple was destroyed because they started writing it in the second century. So they were probably very old when they started writing it. I don't remember if their age is recorded. I'd have to look at that. It's been years since I've looked at it. But they're either secondary witnesses or primary witnesses who knew. If they are secondary witnesses, they knew primary witnesses. And I can say that emphatically because they knew Gamaliel, Gamaliel, who was Paul's teacher. All right. And Gamaliel is cited in the Mishnah. He's the one who solves the problem of do we look at and look for a chodesh, a new moon, or do we calculate the concealed moon? Because he drew crescent moons on his wall in many different variations to verify his witnesses as to what they saw. All right. All right. So, uh, but those guys were merely writing opinion about things, but the, the section on Moed, there, there's called, it's called Tractate Moed, M-O-E-D, is about the feasts. And mm -hmm. it's in there where they say that if you, if you do not obey the sages, and when they say that, they mean, you know, they're wise ones, they're rabbis. If you do not obey their rabbis, if you choose to obey Torah over the rabbis, you have sin, is what they wow. say. Wow. I just read that Two weeks ago. Halilah. If you don't obey us over the Torah, then you are sinning. And that was the beginning of their fence building. Wow. All right. I think really, honestly, I think it I, that was the beginning of enforcing their fence. Because you can see we're about to look at 
Yeshua confronting the fence that the rabbis right. were putting up. All right. And well, so this tiny little command and what we, what, what we know now about you shall not see the kid in its mother's milk is archaeology has shown us that it was a Canaanite practice during their pagan rites of worship. And so they would, they would do that in a, in a pagan ceremony where they, and it was some kind of sick thing where they would, you know, milk a goat and bake, you know, make a stew or something out of that baby goat in its mother's milk right in front of the mother is what it's kind of sounds like, you know? Um, so it, it, in my opinion, it had nothing to do with dairy and meat together. All right. And the first thing we're going to do is go back and look where uh, Abraham kind of proves this wrong. Well, just while you're looking for that, when you think about him even considering that we don't do that shows his compassion. That's right. You know, towards animals, not just humans, but towards this animal. That's right. It is a thing of mercy, I believe. Um, you know, on the, on the, the mother of, of the baby goat, perhaps. Um, yeah, that's deep. That's deep. If that was a pagan practice, it also might have been dedicated to a pagan god. Oh. Yeah, that's that was kind of the point that I was making. It would have been. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, so this is at the Terebinth of Mamre, where, and we've already covered this already, and I don't know if we talked about uh, the meat and dairy issue. We probably touched it a little bit. We did. But um, it, it doesn't hurt to do it again. Uh, we're spiraling here. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so... This is, and we understand that this is Yeshua and two other messengers, Yeshua being Malach Yahweh showing up. He's not Yeshua yet, but he is the word of God, the perfect representation of God in an angelic spiritual body with two other angelic beings showing up and talking to Avraham. And he says, He fetched a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant and hastened to dress it. And then he took curd. What is that? Cheese. Oh, like milk, right? Like yeah, cottage milk. cheese. Like cottage cheese. Mm -hmm. Yeah, curdled milk that's not bad yet. All right. Curd and milk and the calf, which he addressed, and he set it before them. So they went and made bread. They cooked a calf. And they had some form of, of dairy products stored up, both hard and soft. It looks like drinkable, you know, and served it to God's very image in an angelic body. And the way that the rabbis, one of, one of the reasons, one of the excuses that they give is, well, they didn't eat the meat and the dairy at the same time. You cannot say that based on this verse. 
He took the curd, the milk, and the calf and dressed it and set it, set what before them? The curd, the milk, and the milk. The curd, the milk, and the calf. If, if, you're, if you're saying that it was, you know, it was hours long, and they, they, and they say that with authority, and they, and they word it with authority and, and make it pretty and put it in a nice little religious package and put it in front of people, and people buy it. Because if it was two separate events, it would have said, and then, yeah, you know, yeah, well, just, it would have said, well, they put the calf in front of them and they ate the calf and they talked. You know, God would have indicated that there was a time frame, uh, the time frame, if it were that necessary for us not to eat meat and dairy together. Because what this shows me is that they set all three before them. They all would, right. people who promote that would likely say that it's because the Torah hadn't been given that Abraham, Abraham, no, this, is, this, is, this is Jewish people who believe in the, the law having been given to, to Shem who say it. Okay. They believe that the law was, you know, that's how they contradict themselves because they will tell you that the, the rabbis will tell you, and I agree with them here that the commandments were given through Shem to Abraham. And so that's not their excuse. Their excuse is, something entirely made up it, it, this meal well even meal. if they thought that you should believe god is consistent yeah what is this yeah what it chapter? broke up what what's this chapter i see the verse but what's the chapter is it 18 18 thank you better 18 all right, so just to just to confirm it, let's look at it in Hebrew. That's the curd. The halav, that's the milk. And the calf, which he prepared. He stood before them and they ate. All right. He stood before them under the tree and they ate. They ate what he put in front of them. Right. And he stood in front of them while they ate. And then they started speaking. Are you with me? Yeah. So there is zero doubt in my mind that Abraham had a cheeseburger that day. But, but which Hebrew word refers to the separate set of dishes that he used? <laughs> Zachary. Very funny. <laughs> yeah, they were probably lucky to have one set of dishes. <laughs> or, you know, or the separate fire pit, you know, or the yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um so we have in the Torah, and that that's one thing that I wanted to point out, Betsy, is that I do believe that Abraham had the commandments because of what it says. And I believe it's in either chapter 24 or 26. So let's go oh, there. Oh yeah, absolutely. I was not, I was not promoting that point of view at all. I'm saying that that's probably how some people try to get away with it, but it doesn't hold up. It's, it's not consistent. I think it might be 26. Maybe it's 25. 
Nope, here it is. 26 verse 5. Because Abraham hearkened to my voice, kept my charge. There you go. My commandments, my statues, and my laws. And that's actually Torotai. That, that's the plural form of Torah. Mm-hmm. All right. And the rabbis will tell you that's the two Torahs, the written one and the and the, the traditional one, which is just ridiculous. That, that's more regarding the instructions in the word of God. But mm-hmm. so, yeah, God is telling Isaac that he's going to bless him because of his father and his father hearkened to my voice. His voice is his Torah. We've proved that over and over in the scriptures. And he, then he goes on and elaborates. He kept my charge, my mitzvot, that's my commandments, my statutes, and my Torah. Yeah, it's all right there. Everything so you need. Abraham was a Torah keeper and respected and righteous before God, and he had a cheeseburger. So I'm not going to allow any so-called Torah follower to condemn me when I eat dairy and meat together. And I do that. Yeah. And I'm not, I, I will not be condemned by them because of their extra biblical interpretation of what those little simple verses say. You can't get any more clear than those verses, you know, in Hebrew or English mm-hmm. um, that they ate what Abraham put in front of them. Okay. So um, let's go to extra biblical interpretation is a good way to put that. Yep. So let's go to Yohanan Marcos chapter seven. All right. We'll just read at the beginning of it. Then there gathered to him Pedoshim, that's Pharisees, and Sophrim, that's scribes, who had come from Jerusalem. And they saw some of his disciples eating bread with their hands unwashed. Eating bread with their hands unwashed. That was their issue. They reproached them. So the Pharisees and scribes reproached Yeshua's disciples, Talmudim, his Torah students. All right. For all the Jews, and that's the religious Jews, and the Pedoshim, unless their hands were washed carefully, would not eat because they strictly observed the tradition of whom? Elders. The tradition of the elders. This has nothing to do with the Torah. That is the fence that they started building roughly, probably right after the Maccabean Revolt. And after, after Hanukkah reestablished the worship, that's probably about when they started building that fence. They'll claim that it goes all the way back to Ezra and Nehemiah and the, what they call the, the Great Sanhedrin, the Great Council. Mm-hmm. They claim it goes all the way back to there. I disagree with that. I think it because the Pharisees didn't exist at that time. Uh, Hillel was basically the first famous Pharisee, and he's about first century uh, he pre- precedes Yeshua, I think, by almost a century, maybe 60 years, somewhere between 60 and 100 years. And then uh, Shammai comes right behind him and, and is a contemporary of Hillel. And they battle it out. And, and eventually Shammai wins. 
What'd you have, Shelley? Well, I just, whenever I read this, that they, they objected because they didn't wash their hands, I wonder if that refers to ceremonial washing of hands. No. No, they, if, if you, if you look at first century culture, the religious Jews did have a wash basin right inside their door. And so typically they would come in the house and wash their hands so they wouldn't have to, so they wouldn't forget. And so that would justify that they washed their hands before they ate, because usually when a man comes home, first thing he's going to do is eat. Okay, so they had a, a, a wash basin right inside their, the door of their house. And that's what they were talking about. You know how when we went to the to the wall, they yeah. have wash basins there. To, yeah. To and even that is a man-made thing. Okay. So I wondered, that's why I wondered if it was considered not only just washing your hands to clean your hands, but a ceremonial thing. Right. And I didn't object to that because, first of all, we weren't going into a temple, but in, because we were going into the territory of the temple, and I was among Jewish people, and had I gone into the temple, I would have immersed. And that's what that picture was for me. That, that wasn't a picture of this. To me, that washing of the hands was a symbolic immersion for being near the temple. So I didn't mind doing that, you know. Um, you don't think this was involved with a ceremonial kind of... No, no, no. Well, it... It was ceremony, but it was every time they ate. It wasn't just in the temple. Because they, they weren't in the temple. They were out. They were, right. they were out just walking around, you know. Um, so, the but the thing to keep in mind is, um, this is Masoret Hazekinim. The customs the restrictions oh. of the elders. All right. This is, and, and that's what I'm saying is the fence that our Jewish people today will tell you that they put around the Torah was already there. Now, I don't believe they had completely built it because they've added a whole bunch of stuff since then. A lot, tons of regulations about keeping the Torah. They have added uh, since even after Yeshua, what you got, Tracy? Well, I'm, I'm wondering, and this is probably far-fetched, but when it comes to them even trying to build a fence with this, washing their hands, what are they trying, what are they doing here to keep from breaking Torah? Like what, what Torah command is this fence around? What's the purpose of it? Because you're just talking about eating. It could be exactly what Shelley was talking about is they had to wash at certain times when they were in the temple doing ceremonial things. And so in order to prevent them from, or to get them in the habit of doing that, mm. then they just created another law and said, okay, anytime we eat, we're going to wash. And there's nothing in the Torah that says, wash your hands before you eat. There was in my dad's house. It's a good idea. It's a good idea. Excellent idea. <laughs> but it is not something that one should reproach his neighbor about. If you want to wash your hands before you eat, go for it. But if he come in my house, he's going to wash his hands. <laughs> <laughs> I'm offering this some dirty, nasty, muddy, stagnant water to, to repair a leak. You better believe I'm washing my hands before I eat, but 
I don't see where God says you're going to have to wash your hands every time you eat because there's times whenever I'm not in those kind of conditions. And honestly, I don't wash my hands every time before I eat. I, you know, when I get up in the morning, I have I have bathed, I have brushed my teeth, I have cleaned, you know, before I go to sleep. And I lay down and I go to sleep and I get up and I go and eat something without having washed my hands. Unless while I'm making my eggs, I get raw egg stuff on me. Then I'll probably wash my hands before I eat. But there's there's most generally I'm not going to wash my hands before I eat because I don't do what you do, Joe. I'm not, my fingers are not in dirt all day long. I wash them as soon as I leave the school. I've got stuff to, to kill the germs. Right. Uh so I have personal hygiene, but I'm not religiously. There are Jews who that's the first thing they do when they wake up. Is that they, they say a prayer and they wash their hands. They have a ceremony for everything. They have a ceremony for going to the bathroom. Well, and that's that's why I that's why I asked, because I would imagine that there was a prayer said. There was. There was. Single time they wash their hands. Yes, we have it in our siddur right. because you know we understand that clean hands and a pure heart to ascend the to ascend the hill of God is not about physical washing of hands. It's my hands haven't touched, right? Ha have not gone in concert with evil men to do things that they yeah. do. That's what having clean hands is about, Joe. But it also goes along with Yeshua. We're probably going to get there. Where he says, uh, it's not what goes into the... We're into about to the, get into that. Okay, I'll, I'll wait then. Yeah, we're about to get into that. So, But the main thing I'm pointing out is the command that they're talking about, if you search the scriptures, there is no command to, to wash your hands before every time before you eat. There's not. All right? And uh, they would not eat. All right, because they strictly observe the tradition of the elders. Even the things from the market, if they were not washed, they would not eat. And there are a great many other things which they have accepted to obey, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper, copper utensils and the beddings of dead men. So all of these things were already extra laws that they had already made up. They were already building the fence that today they claim they have built. And they accept responsibility for that fence. And they say, God has to acknowledge it. Joe? I like the, uh, I'm looking at the, they have accepted to obey. Yeah. Um, that To me, that puts a very distinction, or a very clear distinction between their rules and God's rules in my mind anyway. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That that's and there it is right there, just so that you're assured that's what it means. Kiblu is is to accept or to receive. Absolutely. All right. Um and the soul freeman the Pedoshim asked him, why do your Talmudim not walk according to the traditions of the elders? So there it is again. We are in verse five. Uh same word. Masoret Hazeknim, the traditions of the elders, but they eat bread with their hands unwashed. And he said to them, the prophet Isaiah well prophesied about you, O hypocrites. And we looked at that word not too long ago, right? Right. <clears throat> Hypocrites. 
All right. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain when they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. All right. That's today, all day. All day. All day long. And people can't see that one phrase sums it all up. Exactly. And this was predicted. This was talking to Israel 900 years before. It is a condition of man to add to God's law when God said, do not add to it nor take away from it. And instead of honoring that commandment, they have violated that commandment and a whole bunch of others. Mm -hmm. Man. And it's not necessarily the tradition itself, but it's teaching them their doctrines, their doctrines, their commandments of men. And, not, and doctrine comes from God. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I was trying to get to. So we're in verse seven. I've been thinking a lot about that, especially with that, that blog article that you wrote about saying the name. You know what I'm saying? And like how we commanded to say the name. And it's one of my brothers that I that I hang out with sometimes. And I always hear him refer to just to say Hashem all the time. And it's like, I want to say something. I don't want to offend him. But I, in my mind, I just really cannot get to the bottom and really have a good understanding of how you can justify because that's that's another tradition that's been created by men because they say they do it out of reverence but that's um, we're, we're we're told to say the name it's he not reverence us to say his name it's not reverence to god it's rebellion against him that's 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 what that's, it really is that is root. that's true yeah. you know so you know, well, but you that's, know that's a hard one to swallow when you especially when you see something like what it, what it says right here, you know what I'm saying? About not giving into the doctrines and the commandments of men That's versus right. what his word tells us to do. That's right. I, I, I can't get, I can't wrap my head around that. If you read a Bible that does not have Hebrew, a Hebrew site, you don't yeah. see the name. Exactly. But I'm, talk, but I'm talking about somebody who, who, who has insight like we do to the Hebrew and who knows that his name is in there, but, but actively chooses not to say it. Well, it's not somebody ever. who's read it. And as you see a capital L Lord. Yeah. Lord. There's two, yeah. There's two classes of people. Those that don't know he has a name and think right. his name is Lord. And then there are actually, there may be three classes of people. There are, there are, there are probably Jews who think his name is Hashem. Yeah. You know, that's true because they've heard that's what or they, they think so his much. name is Adonai and they just don't realize that there there are four letters that 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 is replacing. But then there are many of those among the Jewish community who know and they see it when they read it in Hebrew. Yeah. And they see his his name and they blot it out every time they read in their mind or it, especially with their lips. And so. uh and, and to me, that is, you know, that is a doctrine of men, period. Yeah. Because yeah. God over and over says to declare his name and Yeshua yes. 
Yeshua says his name, and the disciples yeah. preached in the name of Yahweh Yeshua HaMashiach and declared that name and attached it to the creator and, and declared that it had been given to his son. And yes. so it's not a coincidence to me that our Jewish people shut it down in about the second century but because theoretically in submission to Rome, he didn't want them saying it because they believed you needed to do everything in the name of Caesar. Uh, and so they were out of fear. They started, you know, there's one, supposedly there's one uh, rabbi who had a Torah wrapped around him and he was burned because he wouldn't, he wouldn't bend to that law. He would say God's name. All right. Yeah. Um, and that was in the later first century, early second century, if I remember right. I'll have to find it if I can find it. But uh, that kind of stuff is hard to find because I think they purged the Internet of, of, of stuff like that. But uh, yeah. but then you have. Uh, I'm, I'm train wreck. Train wreck. I saw it. I saw it when it hit. Yeah, <laughs> you you were describing three different types of people who have opinions about the name. Yeah. So, so you have, you have, you have a deliberate effort to blot it out in the second century. And, and, uh, you know, because in the Mishnah, they talk about what their claim was in the Mishnah is that nobody said it except on Yom Kippur. Yes. And that is in the Mishnah, but that was among the Pharisees. All right. Yeah. Not all denominations followed the Pharisees. Today, they all do. Every Jewish denomination that exists today comes from the Pharisees, every last one of them. But in the first century, there were multiple denominations, and only the Pharisees were doing it. And yes, they were only saying it on Yom Kippur, according to second century rabbis. We don't have any first century rabbis. What we do have is Yeshua saying the name. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And you guys know that, and you can look in the scriptures and see that, that Yeshua said it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, what you got, Tracy? Well, I was going to say with this, um, with, with the excuse of saying, not saying his name, they tie in one of the commandments to, to not take his name in vain. They tie that in, but that's also like... Uh, I just had a train wreck, but anyway, that a lot of them, a lot of, oh, that's like saying we, we worship on Sunday because he rose on Sunday, because he rose on Sunday, you know, it's like you see something there, but then you tie other things to it. And then you start making it a narrative. And then now everybody's believing it as opposed to reading the scripture and seeing exactly what it says and not um, adding their own nuances or phrases or thoughts you know yeah and and the book of numbers actually gives us what that blasphemy is and uh excuse me uh hopefully i can find it yeah nope that's not where it is what does it say? Somebody's going to have to go go gadget it for me. It's where the guy, the, the I'm pretty sure it's in the book of Numbers, but the, the man that uh, killed his neighbor, they had just come out, it might be in Deuteronomy, but they, uh, a son of an Egyptian 
killed another Israeli and cursed him in the name of Yah. And that was considered the blasphemy of taking his name in vain. I just can't, I'm, I thought it was in Numbers 15, but I, I'm, I'm remembering now that it's not, it's probably somewhere else. But uh, um, if we can find that, we can go look at that. Because taking his name in, in vain means, and what it actually says, tase, which means you shall not lift up, you shall not use the name of Yahweh for vanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, for an empty reason, for a deceitful reason. You know what's the um, first thing that popped in my head when you said that? What's that? The, the true idea of um using his name to say something against him that's not even of his character. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it is kind. Of, it, it is deceptive. You know, and and this well, not deceptive, but de- deceit. You know, deceitful and evil. You know, that's that's not. <clears throat> there's the command right there. in his name that's that's you know yeah that's that's what the guy did is he he cursed him in the name of yeah whoever he killed and then he killed him and it, and that was considered blasphemy all right and so what he had done is exactly this lo tisa you shall not lift up or use all right et shem yawa elohecha lashav for falseness for vanity for lying all right you not yeah. you not use it to deceive is and that's what people are are doing is that they're speaking in the name of god and telling people god said you know don't say his name you know and i have seen i've looked at uh, some of there are modern more modern jewish translations where they tweak what this says in the english they say it does. They 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 modify the in vain part, and I I just forget how they do it, I, and I don't remember exactly what translation it is. But they modify the in vain part to basically make it fit what the rabbis have commanded, and I think it's something like "You shall not say his name." I, I can't remember. They make it fit their rabbinic command, the yeah. translation. But this is so simple: "You shall not lift up the name." of Yahweh your Elohim for lying, for falseness, for deceit. That's what shav is. All right. So, um, Joe, what you got? That probably right there clears up my question, but I've heard it said before that to take his name in vain is to cause his name to be, to come to nothing, I guess, like to belittle his name or, or something like that. And I guess that still would be kind of applicable, but if that is applicable, then you would think that just refusing to say his name would cause his name to be nothing and would be taking his it's name. More, it, it, it does more damage to his name than anything, because just like yeah. we said, there are people who want to believe in God who have no clue that he has a name. Yeah. And it's because of men. So Tisha means to bear Tisa. Tisa means to bear. To bear, to lift up, to carry, to to do. Yeah. Okay. Use. Yeah. Okay. You know what else that made me think of though? Like to to curse someone in his name. It's it, it almost say if somebody, like you say, people listening to that and hearing that, other non-believers, or just anybody in general, it almost sounds like you cursing somebody in the name of 
in the name of like a Ra or something, like a pagan god. You know what That's I'm saying? That's exactly what the incident was. We got to find that incident. Did somebody look it, try, attempt to look it up? I was, I was attempting, but I, I get I'll try to. Look, I got Moses. They took me to Moses. Yeah, he killed an Egyptian. But this is an Egyptian killing an Israeli. That's what I said, but it didn't, it didn't show um, Was that the one that was associated with a female called Cosby? Yes. Okay. Yeah, search on her name, C-O-S-B-I, in, in one of the more common Bibles. Um, I'm pretty sure that's who his... Numbers 25. Ah, 15. I had 15 in my head. It must be 25. Mm -hmm. I don't have a verse yet. 25, 6 through 9, or around 6. Nope, that's not it. Nope. Ah, uh, that's another baddie. That's not it. Darn it. We're gonna find it. Hmm. Leviticus 24? Yeah. Oh, wow. I was way off. It's in Leviticus. Because Egyptian kills neighbor brought up a lot of things that had nothing to do with the Bible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I was thinking it was in numbers. All right, here it is. The son of an Israelite woman whose father was a, an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel and the son of the Israelite woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp and the son of the Israelite woman blaspheme the name mm. and cursed all right so that's all he did he didn't kill him so i'm i was probably mixing stories there but he blasphemed the name and cursed and they brought him to moshe and his mother's name was shlomit i knew his mother's name came up the daughter of divri of the tribe of dun and they put him in war that means they put him in custody and it might be declared unto them at the mouth of Yahweh. And Yahweh spoke unto Moshe, saying, Bring him forth that cursed without the camp and let all. So he used the name of exactly what you were talking about, Albert. He used the sacred name of God to curse another human being. Yeah. That's crazy. And there are a lot of religious people that do that. It's like you putting him on a level of, of a pagan God. Exactly. Getting him involved in your petty dispute. <laughs> yeah. yeah and and uh that was that was taking it in vain in falseness and that's what blasphemy is all yeah. right he blasphemed the name by cursing you could say but you know you know you said that that was um disrespectful but and when i when i when i remember when i told you why i'm convicted to say the name and how I find it weird that people try to justify not saying the name. And I said, 
reverence and you corrected me and said it's rebellion, I guess I've tried to justify it in my mind for them as well. But the very thing that convicts me to say it is that is I feel like if I didn't say it, I feel like I would be disrespectful. Daniel, read that in Hebrew. Let me see it in Hebrew. Which one? What? 11. Verse 11? Yes. Vayikob ben ha'isha ha'yisraelit et Hashem. He blasphemed the name. Vaykalel and cursed. Cursed. Okay, that's what I was looking for. Vaykalel and cursed. Yikbol. I'm sorry, Yikov. All right, that's the blaspheme part. Et the name Hashem. That's this is one of the reasons they call him Hashem, but it's not. It's not God's name. It's he 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 blasphemed God's name. Blasphemed the name. Yeah. yeah, and his name is. We all know what his name is. Yes. Uh, and cursed. All right. So that's what he did. And I and my interpretation of this is, and I believe it's sound, is that he cursed that guy in the name of God because they were in they were in a fight. All right. And so people do that all the time. Right. Although thankfully, in a way, they've been protected from doing what this guy did because they don't know his name. They use something else that they think is his name. <laughs> yeah. So in a sense, they're kind of guilty of it anyway, even though they're not. They don't know his name. Right. They think they are, you know. And so, yeah, they're. I believe they're guilty of it. But um, in a way, they're being protected from this because this guy knew his name and used it to curse someone. And that is lifting it up in for vanity's sake in falseness. And I believe going around saying Hashem said, you know, is doing the exact same thing. Yeah. For one thing, God said, do not take away or nor add to the Torah. And when I'm reading the scriptures, I right. will not blot out his name. I will not do it. I have yet to get a satisfactory answer when I ask them if they feel like that's changing the word by saying Hashem. It's, there's nothing you can say to, to justify that, really. They know it is. They just don't want to admit it. They want to walk with people who scratch their itching ears. Yeah. yeah, that often was yeah. my question too. Why? How can you read something and then change the name? Like, like well, their safety in numbers, you know. Uh -huh. um, but we're, we're we're also told do not follow a multitude into error. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's one of the things that popped in my mm -hmm. head when you were reading yeah. that. Just Me not too. that not, not not that specific example, but just people seeing society or groups doing things and just going along with it oh, well, I, really had, I have had messianic people tell me that that's why they keep the feast with the with the with the rabbinic community is because you know it's what we it's the same excuse that christians give they don't want to give yeah. up christmas because the masses are doing christmas and they don't want to feel different they want to be safe in their numbers they don't want to be come out from among them and be separate so it's a desire to blend in with humanity instead of standing out for God's sake. And I guess I've always just been a little bit half a bubble off and I don't care that I look, you know, I mean, I care. I want a crowd to worship with, 
You know, I don't want to do it absolutely alone. I don't want to feel like Eliyahu. And sometimes I have, you yeah. know, but I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to give in to man's doctrine and, and give over the authority of Yeshua to, to the rabbinic community just because I want to be comfortable. And unfortunately, right. that's what a lot of people are doing. They want to, they want to be part of a bigger crowd. Yeah. But like you said, that, that goes, that, that goes hand in hand with being set apart. Exactly. That's, that's almost like literally being set apart. That's what being set apart is. That's what being set apart is. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. So let's go back to Mark because we had more to do there. I think I can do that. I had one open for. I guess I must have moved it already anyway. I'll just use this one. Because I don't think we finished there. The, the, the prophet Isaiah well prophesied about you. He did a good job prophesying about you, O hypocrites, as it is written. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. They worship me in vain. And this is what I wanted to look at. When they teach as doctrines the commandments of man. When they teach teachings as commandments, all right, when they, okay, so this is almost a double. Lamdam, when they teach, Belamdam, when they teach, Limude, doctrines, mitzvot shel bnei adam, as commandments of men. All right, and that is literally, like I have said already, that is literally what the rabbinic community confesses that they do. We have the authority to command you to do this, and you have to follow us and not the Torah when it, when it deviates. They say that, and so does the Catholic Church. Yeah. We have the authority to move the Sabbath, and we moved it, and they mock Protestants for following them because they know they moved it. All right? You have ignored the mitzvah of Elohim, the commandment of God, and you observe the tradition of men. Let's look at that. This is verse 8. Azavtem, you have forsaken the commandment of God. Ignored is a good translation, but literally it's forsaken, turned away from. Mitzvot Elohim, umahazikim, and you have clung to the traditions of the sons of men. All right, washing of cups and pots and a great many other things like these. And he said to them, he said to them, you certainly do injustice to the mitzvah of Elohim so as to sustain your own tradition. This is, this is serious wording here. Verse nine, 
um, the end of verse nine. that you may establish your traditions. You have, you have done injustice or violence to the commandment of God in order to firmly establish your traditions. That's what that little phrase right there highlighted says. So you've done violence, you've done injustice to the word of God, the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And everybody has done that. Yeah. All religions have done that. They they have obliterated God's word. I mean, we've talk think about it. 7,000 times at least God's name is in the scriptures. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. 7 and that's let me add to that. Almost 1200 times because of the Brit Hadashah, it's about 460 I think in the Brit Hadashah the name of God. So let's say 1,500, 1,300 times the name is in the scriptures and you're ignoring it. You're replacing it when you read. You're replacing it when you write it or say it or speak it to someone. You're blotting out the name of God. There's multiple, multiple commands that you're breaking right there. Do not add to nor take away from this word of mine. Mm -hmm. Do not... Uh, uh, treat the name of God with falseness because that to me is a lie. Maybe I'm too black mm. and white, but Hashem is not his name. Right. Hashem is <laughs> it's not a name. Uh, Adonai is not his name. I can call him Adonai under certain circumstances, and I do, and I will call him Lord under certain circumstances. But isn't that's not his name? Mm -hmm. All right. So they're sustaining their own tradition and they're doing injustice to the commandment by that. And it, to me, that injustice is uh, deceiving people with what you say the word of God says. Yeah. Mm. And having gotten a little insight into the breakdown of his name and it, it, it takes away it's that this is this is even when, once you get past the fact that he commands you to proclaim his name, but past that point, seeing the different variations of who was, who is, who is to come, you you take all that away by calling him a Hashem. Yeah, like it it it, it devalues it. It devalues it. it. It diminishes who he is, in my opinion. It, it, yeah. it, and it can even change who he is. Mm -hmm. The name. That's so silly to me, man. I, yeah. Man. But God knows my heart. Yeah, he knows you don't love him <laughs> enough to call him by his name. Yeah. Yeah, he knows your heart and how wicked it is. And I don't say that with snideness because I know how wicked my heart is. And I know that yeah. I have a tendency to go this route as well. And I guard against it, you know, and yeah. maybe I guard too much, but I'd rather err on the side of caution when it comes to my eternity. <laughs> I know, man. For I'd rather real. err on the side of caution when it comes to walking with my savior who, who I try to emulate. And he said the name, I'm going to say it. I'm going to try to do it in the same context and style and with the same heart and reverence that he did it, but I'm going to do it. That's right. 
And that's not building a fence. That's just being cautious to do what he said as he wrote it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's, that's very simply, that's all that is. Absolutely. All right. And he goes on and gives them examples. And we've gone over this before. And we might have done it when we hit Exodus 20. I don't know. Uh, but again, we're cycling, we're spiraling, we're reviewing if we have to. That's fine. This seems to be important. You dishonor the word of God for the sake of the tradition which you have established. You do a great many other things like these. All right. Uh, he, he talked about the carbony. Mm -hmm. um, Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father and mother, let him die the death. But you say a man, they say to his father and mother, what is left over is my offering, my gift. And yet you do not let him do anything for his father or mother. So people in the religious community are preventing people from doing things in the Torah because <laughs> of their commands. And just like Albert's been pointing out, God tells us to declare his name and the command of man has come along and stopped men from doing that. Mm -hmm. I guess like tithing. It's the same thing. Was that Tracy? I said, I guess like tithing, you know, they, they're yeah. guilty people into tithing when they can't, you know, whether it be for their parents or for their own livelihood, they'll go without to make sure that they pay their tithes. Yeah, Melanie and I did when we first got married. We were tithing to our own hurt. Yeah, me and, too. And I read the scriptures and I wasn't trying to find a solution. I was just reading and it just dawned on me, oh my gosh, this is a gift to God and, and I'm supposed to give freely and joyfully and I can't do that if I'm giving 10% of a meager paycheck. I was yeah. making like 750 a month and we had a house note. Oh, man. You know, and 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 I, I was like, I, I can't, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I, Melanie was scared to death, <laughs> you know, that I was fixing to screw our life up, you know, <laughs> but she, <laughs> she did it. She did it with me. And what we did and I told her this is what we're going to do. We're going to give whenever we can. And we're going to do it in secret like Yeshua said to. And we're going to. Um, um get it to where it meets a need. And yes, we will give to the congregation we were going to because we sit in the air conditioning and we know that needs to be filled, you know, so we're going to give there, but they're not going to know how much, you know? Yeah. And then when we can meet someone else's need, we're going to do it. We started putting that into practice and, and, and our financial life exploded and God proved to us that it wasn't about tithe. It was about a heart of giving and what we yeah. could do joyfully. Joe, what you got? I was just going to say just exactly that, that all these preachers will tell you that Yah's law has been abolished, but yet bring those tithes and offerings. And, and that's the, one of the things that we can't even do today anyway. But at the same time, when I'm talking to people about it, I say, but God loves a cheerful giver. Please, by all means, if you have a congregation, give as you can to your congregation because there are needs that need to be met there. And it's only right for you to do that. But don't let anybody compel you to do so because or, or put a guilt trip on you because you have to not rob God by that day. Joe, you said it and I was thinking it. I, I was thinking how, how guilty I used to feel when that preacher be in the pulpit. Will a man rob God? I'm like, oh, <laughs> man. I feel like I'm robbing him. 
And you, and you know, exactly. what, what I, what, when it comes to even uh, the father giving his commandments, it's in those first five books. Cause it's, it's, that's, that's where he, he let the law, that's where he put everything. So at that point, there was no synagogue. There was no church, you know, and, and not that, like you say, not that you don't give money to help keep things going in the synagogue and in the church. Yeah, you do that, but, but he didn't command you to tithe to the synagogue or the church because there was not. What I, I'm, I'm, I was looking for something. What period, what time period are you talking about? Who are you talking to me? Yep. Well, I'm saying, and when did he give his, <laughs> he gave his tour in the first five books. Well, there was a temple. There was a, the tabernacle. I'm not talking about the temple. I said the synagogue or the church. Well, there's no such thing as the church anyway. But well, but what I'm saying is that's what they use. But but you know, if he gave his his instructions on the tithe, you know, and how to use it, how do you take what he took for that period and that time period and say now it's changed because we got a synagogue and a church. And, and we got to do that now to the synagogue and the church. How, how do you make a decision and say that it right. goes there? Right. So, they, so they're, they're saying that it's the, the church is likened to the temple as if the temple was still it's standing? It's not necessarily likened to the temple, but it's just the storehouse. Like when they use that okay. book, the storehouse, like the storehouse is a place you store food. It ain't a church. It, it right. ain't even a synagogue. Right. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, how do you take what he said now, and and my pastor, love, I love him. He says, you know, it has evolved. Evolved to what? Who said that it evolved? You yeah. know, because it wasn't what it was used for then. Now that we have these other emphasis, is it goes towards that. And I'm like, who said that? Where where did it say that? You show me. Show me where it said that. That God said it, not man, but God. Right. Because I know they started getting temple, I mean, um, certain taxes, they, I mean, tithe, and, you know, it's more tithe that go into it and the, the, what you got to pay and all that. But isn't that man? Because God gave those first five books. That was it. Yeah, they're, they're, they're quoting Malachi 3, 8 through probably about 18, I think, or 12, somewhere along yeah. there. Um, will a man rob Elohim, yet you rob me, but you say, wherein have we robbed you? And in Ma'aser and Terumah, that is in uh, the tenth part and the gift, all right? You are cursed with a curse, yet you rob me, even this whole nation. Bring the whole tenth part into the storehouse. That was a place in the temple to put the food. Right. It wasn't mm -hmm. money. It was food. Yeah. Bring it to the temple. The Levites will put it in a storehouse and they're going to feed themselves and the poor off of it. All right. That there may be food in my house and try me. There's the proof there, that there may be food in my house. So it wasn't about bringing money to God so that the priest could have high hair and a limousine. Right. Right. And also at that time period, Daniel, wasn't it the fact that um, they had forsaken the, the, the law of, of the tithing for the I'm Levites? I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get oh, to that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> test me in this and see whether or not I will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you that there shall be more for sufficiency. And I will rebuke the devourer for your good. Yeah, they were going through it. All right. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your land and you, you, you shall not 
Neither shall your vine cast its fruit before the time. All the nations shall be happy for you. You shall be a delightsome land, says Yahweh. So yeah, bring the tithe in. But what they don't realize, what most people don't realize is that the tithe is done at the feasts, at Passover and Shavuot and Sukkot. The, the bringing of the tithe was commensurate with being in God's presence. And that is what he was bothered about. If you read the rest of the book of Malachi, that was the problem. They weren't keeping his feast the way he instructed them to keep them. And so the bringing of the tithe was they weren't coming into fellowship with him. And the proof of it is right here at the bottom. Remember the Torah of Moshe, my servant, mm -hmm. who I, which I commanded to him. And behold, I will send you Eliyahu Hanavi before the coming of Yom Yahweh HaGadol Hanarah, the great day, great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike, smite the land with utter destruction. So after the tithe commands, he says, remember the Torah. All right. Because the Torah, the tithe is commensurate with worshiping God in Jerusalem. That's what mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. All right. And so he put his name. You, you cannot. It is impossible to tithe. Now, you could give joyfully if you can do it some people can joyfully give 10 percent to things that god is doing in the earth and that wouldn't be wrong but to yeah. call it a tithe and <coughs> guilt people out of it is blaspheming god in my opinion because he's not saying that and it's also theft exactly yeah and and, and that's one of the things that he uh admonishes israel for over and over is not taking care of the widows and the poor you know, and, and uh, Melanie and I, one of the last churches we went to, um, the guy was driving around in, in Lincoln's and, and, and after we'd only been in, we'd only been there for about six months. And after two to three months of our having been there, he, they just couldn't shut up about the tide every single Sunday morning. It was the first thing they had the, the financial guy from the congregation got up and preached on the tide every week. And after about three of those weeks, I was like, I'm sick of this. You know, they were driving around in, in Lincoln's and, and living in half a million dollar homes. And they had people in there that were just pouring out their money and their kids were, were walking around without shoes and starving. Well, this last pastor was driving around in a Rolls Royce and his wife was wearing a million dollars worth of jewelry. And he yeah. wasn't the slightest bit embarrassed by that when they interviewed him about the robbery. You, you saw that, right? He was offended that, you know, he got robbed. And his wife, how can somebody come into a church and rob my wife of a million dollars worth of jewelry? <laughs> I couldn't even believe that he wasn't embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so Daniel, I'm sorry. I, I just want to go ahead and, like, kind of get back off the subject for one little second because I think there's... I just want to make sure I'm hearing this correctly. There is no such thing modern day times as a tithe, as a compulsion by Yah to allocate a certain percentage of your income, because that's what I've always thought it was, to your congregation. Am I correct? There is no. Well, yes. And, and I'm going to qualify it because congregations need to function. And so in the brief Hadashah in first or second Corinthians chapter nine, I think maybe even in first Corinthians chapter nine, but Paul addresses it twice. 
And, and that's where he says it's, it's fitting to give and you should do that. And that you need to meet the needs of the congregation, but he never puts a number on it. The number that Paul puts on it is what you can do happily. And so the principle of giving 10%, if that's your number, then that's, we're not saying don't do it. We're saying it is not law that you do it and you're not, your blessing is not attached to the number. Your blessing is attached to your heart mm -hmm. and, and, and why you give the amount that you give. And some people like, like uh, Ananias and Sapphira gave because they wanted to be known to give more. And that's the wrong reason. All right. So if you're giving out of a genuine heart, what you can joyfully give, it doesn't matter whether it's 10% or 3%. It doesn't matter. All right. Yeshua taught about the old woman. Yeshua sat there. Let's, let's try to find that. Yeshua sat at the giving box and watched people give. And rich men were giving, you know, oodles of money, you know, I, I don't know if there's an actual number in there, but they were getting out of their abundance. It was easy for them to do. And they were walking by and ringing bells and, you know, dropping the money to make sure everybody heard how big the bag was. You know, they want everybody to know what they were giving. And then this little old woman comes up and puts her last coin in the giving box. And Yeshua said she gave more than anybody. So what I'm saying, Daniel, is the principle of giving is good and God does bless you. And some people, and I believe you, Daniel, some people have a gift, a spiritual gift of being able to give and a desire to give. And that is a, that is a function of the rule of the Kodesh. Mm -hmm. And, but you're, you know, if you attached a number to it, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying you about you, Daniel, I'm saying you about anybody if you attach a number to it, fine. Just don't tell someone else they have to as well. Or that it's commanded by God. Or that it's commanded by God. Don't right. say that it's a tithe. It's not a tithe. It's a gift. You're supporting the ministry of God through your giving. And you're doing so cheerfully and without compulsion. And that's that to me is the model. And that's the model that we've always striven to follow. And we have never once as a congregation had to beg for money. Not one time, because people will give when they are led by the Ruach and can do it joyfully. I don't want anybody giving to Mikdash Mayat begrudgingly. Sure, sure. And I guess my only question is, you know, from somebody who is kind of a neophyte when it comes to digging into the Torah, why then would the kind of the, the, the cornerstone be the tenth part to, um, you know, way back you know, in the early part of Genesis, when he's talking about, you know, the, I forget the name of the character, but it was the 10th part to the, the kings that came back to war. You know what I mean? Why, why would that sort of be planted there? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, the 10th part for the, for the Canaanites was for, for protection from the king. So they would give, so there were about 13 city states, walled city states in the promised land when Abraham got there. And they, the people who lived outside of the city would pay a 10th part to that king in order to secure his protection if marauders or other armies came. And so it was basically a fee. So um, when, when 
God brought Israel together, he was creating an army. And so the Israelis were going to enjoy all, you know, one tribe of Israel was going to enjoy the protection of the other tribes. And you see that when uh, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh want to stay on the other side of the river. And what does they say? You're going to sit here and not go to war with your brothers when they cross the river? No, you're going to go, right? So it was about protection from God physically uh, against their enemies. And so we don't have that in the sense of we need physical protection from some, you know, the, from, uh, you know, some religious figurehead. That's not what it's about. So, um, but God picked that number, 10%, because it's basically 3.3% a year, because you're going to do it three times a year. All right. So it's 3.33 repeating, you know, one third at Passover, one third at, at uh, uh, Shavuot, and one third at Sukkot, you know, and there's different opinions about when you brought what and all of that, and that's not important. But the point being is that uh, the principle is there, and if if 10% is your number, then that you're fine using it, but you can't use that as a compulsory measure on the whole congregation. That makes sense? Yeah. Daniel? Yeah, it does. I guess, uh, who, who's the king that, that, that uh, Shalem, you know, the... Melchizedek. 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 Yes. Yes. Yeah. That was that was a and he is uh, a figure of Yeshua. May have actually been the messenger. May have actually, and I believe it was. I believe Hebrews seven basically tells us that Melchizedek was Yeshua, and that Abraham gave a tenth part to him. But Abraham didn't do it out of compulsion. Abraham wasn't going to give. He wasn't going to take any of the spoils of war from the five kings that he had just rescued, which was the principle in the land, is that you pay it to the person who rescues you, who protects you, all right? And so those five kings wanted to pay their, their tenth part of their spoils. That was new income that they won in the war. It wasn't regular income. Are you with me? Yes. Right, right. This was new income, an instantaneous, what we would call a windfall in modern parlance. All right, so they just got a windfall and they wanted to give it to Abraham and Abraham said, no, I'm going to take only what my people eat, you know, and I forget exactly the words. And then he takes a tenth part of that and gives it to Melchizedek because he knew who that was, but it wasn't compulsory. Melchizedek didn't come and ask him for it. He knew who his protector was, mm -hmm. the king of peace. <laughs> That's a great explanation. Thank you. All right. So it's not, it's not compulsory. It was compulsory in the temple times, and it did come with a blessing. We just read it out of Malachi 3. But it's, it, the blessing is because you're there being in my presence, you want to be here and you want to do what I've told you to do. <laughs> it's not about, i got to have your money, and if you don't, I'm not going to bless you. You don't bring 10% to, to you know, I'm not going to bless you. Um, right. That was, it was about fully living a, a life of worship toward God is what it was. But he was trying to protect, uh, correct their malicious hearts. You know, they, their heart had turned away from him. And that's what he was trying to correct. And he, and he refers them right back to the Torah to do it. All right. But in the Brit Hadashah, nowhere do you see a compulsion to pay a 10% to the congregation. Nowhere. 
Yet you do see give and give happily. Whatever measure, let's just go read that. I think it's 2 Corinthians 9, I think. A cheerful giver? Yeah. Wasn't some of that, though, Daniel, meant to for support of the priesthood? Yes, one-third of it was. One-third was the, for the poor. Right. And one-third was for yourself. Because you right. traveled and you're going to eat for two weeks in Jerusalem and you need food, so you brought your food. Well, that's what's going to break up is that we have to remember that the Levites had no inheritance in the land. Yeah. Their whole existence, their whole reason for existing was to do temple service, temple duties. And so they would not be out growing their own food or raising their own food. And so a lot of that was for people to support them, to allow them to do what God had called them to do, which is serve the temple. Exactly. And while they weren't serving in the temple, they were serving the community they lived near. All right. And I, I personally believe there were houses of worship, small houses of assembly, I should say, throughout the land of Israel. Um, and it became a synagogue uh, after the after the Babylonian exile. We know that that's when the synagogue fully emerged. All right. But um, and, and, and they probably supported the synagogue financially. They had to. Right. They didn't have to keep lights on, but they had to maintain the building right. and build the building. You know, they needed to buy oil for the menorah. Oil for the for the menorah, the lights that they did have in there. Yeah, they so they so they probably financially supported their synagogue. But when they went to the temple, they brought their tenth part of their crop, right. so they could eat a third of it, give a third of it to the poor, and give a third of it to the Levites. Right. Absolutely. That was that's my what, point. That, that's what it meant to bring it into the storehouse. And so here, Paul is writing about this issue because the Macedonians had been generous to him. And he says, remember this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. So that's true. That's a principle in the scriptures. If you give just a tiny bit and you're able to do more, then yeah, you're going to reap sparingly. God is going to bless you according to what you give. Yes, that is a, I don't disagree with that. He who sows generously shall also reap generously. So let every man give not 10%. According to what he has decided in his own mind, not begrudgingly. In other words, not under compulsion or not, I hate to do this, but I'm, nor of compulsion. There's a, there it is right there. For Elohim loves a cheerful giver. So whatever you can, whatever amount that you decide in your mind that you can do so without begrudgingly, without being compelled to do it. That's what compulsion is. Don't let anybody force you into giving a number. But, uh, and what you can do so cheerfully. So if you can do it, cheerfully do it. This is just such a hot topic subject because, I mean, everyone in this world has that one currency, you know, be it whatever country that you're in. I mean, you need money. And I would feel like this is probably the thing that most people fear most, lack thereof, you know, financial ability to like pay your bills, do anything like that. And, you know, it, I feel like it picks on fear as well. It's not just, you know, the um, like the financial component. It's like, am I going to have enough to eat? Am I going to have enough to pay my bills? I mean, there's, there's so much underneath, like in steam, you know, underneath where you allocate your money. 
And, you know, I never want to be the kind of guy who you know, hoards his money because he's afraid. Cause I know that's a big sin higher than witchcraft, right? When you're talking yeah. about the, his fear, you know? And so it's like, how do you, you know, give with a, you know, without fear, right. But yet still respect the laws of this world, even though we're, we're, we're not living, we're living in the world, but not of the world, but yet you still have to kind of live in the world. You know what I mean, Daniel? Cause I mean, I think I'm like everybody else in the call. I'm trying to break free and transcend from the bondage of fear in the world. And this is kind of a, a, a big issue for me is, you know, raising four little kids, private schools, you know, how to honor God and give him of your first fruits yet still, you know, you know, you know, some going with this. I mean, that's and I yeah. hate to kind of circle back on it, but it's kind of a big one, you know. No, it is a big one, and 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 uh, it, I think the takeaway is is just don't feel like you must give a certain number, you know. And and so if you're, let's say you're giving a certain number, and I'm when I say that, I mean a percentage of your income because that's how most of us calculate it, and that's what God said—a tenth part. That's a fraction, a percentage. All right. Let's say you've been doing that and things change. Don't begrudgingly give because things change. Drop the amount that you're giving until such time as you can change it back. And don't feel compelled to continue to give what you had been because a man comes to you and says you must. You know, they that that last church that we went to the the straw that broke the camel's back was they handed out a form and wanted my tax information. I'm sitting there on a Sunday morning in a church with a pastor asking me for my personal tax information. And it was clearly to find out if I was giving accordingly to according to my income. Wow. I, I think that that I visited lots and lots of churches in the in the course of my journey. And I don't know if I just always hit the churches at the wrong time, but it seemed like every single time I, somebody said, oh, come to my church, come to, all I heard was requests for money. And the, some of these fundraising campaigns that they did to get people to commit to giving that 10%, um, I, it, it's, it's designed to make you feel guilty to make you feel like if you don't do that, you will not be blessed, yet you are offending God. That you, And I think that no one has to tell you how much to give because you do know. That's right. It, it speaks to you. you. You will be convicted with what you should, could do. Left, right. left to leave it to God and That's not just a preacher, you know. But yeah, and Daniel, to the fear element, let's read on just a little bit. Elohim is able to make all goodness abound to you. All right. And may you always have enough of everything for yourselves. And may you abound in every good work. So if you are striving to live your life for Elohim and you're giving cheerfully an amount that you yourself selected, because that's the cheerful amount for you, and, and, and if it scares you, don't worry about it. He's able to make goodness abound to you. Make sure you have everything for yourselves. He's going to take care of you. All right. Um, Daniel, can I say one more thing about that? I, I think uh, well, Joe raised his hand, so let me get oh, to him I'm first. Sorry. Okay. 
Well, in this day of health and wealth, prosperity, gospel preaching and stuff, the tithe is like their hot button topic because they push it as a, if you want a nice fancy car like I got or a nice fancy house like I got, you got to give me to give to God X amount of money, you know? And so they, they, they twist it and they push it and they, they put it into a whole new type of doctrine and they tie it in with that health and prosperity thing so tightly that a lot of us who came out of that, I think Daniel, you're, uh, you may be the same type that came out of the same, same types of Christian circles as I, as I came out of. I don't know that. I'm just assuming, uh, but yeah, man, they tie that stuff down tight and they link it all together. Like if you want stuff, I've heard it say, if you think you can't afford to give, that means you can't afford not to give. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, yeah, it's a whole, it, it's, it's one of the things that drives people away from congregations. It does. And it, it makes a mockery of God. You know, I've, I've heard people mock it, you know, Oh, God needs my money. You know, um, it, it makes a mockery of God. You know, God, I, I want to close with this. Giving is a giving to the work of Elohim is a biblical thing. And God does bless people for doing it. Absolutely. And he said it here. It is right. If you give sparingly, in other words, if you have more to give and all you give is a little pittance, then God's going to bless you with another little pittance, you know. But if you give generously, he's going to he's going to bless you generously. That is a I believe that's a biblical principle. But I'm not going to use that to try to compel people and shame people into giving to me. Right. Yeah. Uh, or they, giving, hit the nail giving, on the head. gosh, may I. I think you just hit the nail on the head right there. And, and it was you said it so succinct and so perfectly is that, yes, by you giving of your treasure that you will be blessed. You're not compelled to give, though. I think that's a very good, you know, it felt good to my soul to hear that. Yeah. I think that was a very good answer. Yeah. And look at the last thing. He has distributed. God has. Uh, this is actually from Psalm 111 or 112. I think it's 112. Yeah, it's 112. We say it. Melanie says it over me every week. He has distributed liberally and given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. The principle is, and that's what we, me, Melanie and I started doing. We supported our congregation where we were going, still at the time going to church, even though we started keeping Passover at the time. Uh, we were giving there what we felt was justified our sitting there under the air conditioning and listening and being part of the ministry. But we also looked for people and we weren't making, I'm telling you, I was, I was making 750 a month. But we looked for people to give to, and if we had it to give, and one of the one we had thirty dollars in a bag of pennies, and someone else, another young couple that just had a baby, was out of stuff, and we knew it, and we drove to the to the congregation, and we saw their car, and we we prayed before we got out of the car, let their door be open because we weren't going to hand it a bag of pennies to them, you know. We put it in their car <laughs> and, and they had, they probably had no idea who did it, but we wanted to do that for them. And we were, I was unemployed at the time 
at that, this was before I was making, this was when we were, I was unemployed, I think. Was it, Melody? I was unemployed at the time. And uh, we did that because they were hurting. We were getting fed miraculously. We'd go, people would say, you want to come to dinner? And Melody and I are like, Heck yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and go eat at people's houses. You know, it was just happening left and right. Nobody knew our situation. Nobody. We weren't walking around with our heads down and bathing in dust and trying to look bedraggled and needy. You know, it looked like our needs were met, you know. Um, and then we walked out of that, out of the building that night with $300, an exact. What is that an increase of 100%? I don't remember, $30 to 300, whatever that is, tenfold of what we get had given that night, you know, wow. of people just walking up to us and giving, and they had no idea. And that was the last bundle of money that came to us before I got the job. That, that $300 went away and I was employed. And, and that was on the heels of us deciding we're going to be givers. You know, we're not, we're, th this tithing thing, no, we're not going to do it anymore. We're going to be givers. And we give liberally, Melanie and I do, uh, when we can. And uh, we look for ways to, we still do that, you know. Uh, we've given material things in abundance, you know, things that we've stopped using, we give it away and we don't ask for money for it. We don't sell it. We don't, you know, um, that's the principle is to help people, mm -hmm. uh, God's people and poor people, especially if they're God's people and they're poor, you know? So anyway, we beat that to death and we're probably out of time. But you would give over over donating to the pastor love offering in a building fund? <laughs> well, we would give to that, but we would do that privately. You know, it wasn't, I'm just kidding, Dave. I know, you know, it's two or three years later, we finally were done with church because of all this stuff, you know, but before that, before we finally said we're done, um, uh, I think it was the second to the last church that we went to here in Houston when we moved here, um, we, uh, I, my kids were little and we wanted them to be givers. And so yeah. we would give them money to put in the plate, but it was always the same deacon who came by and passed the plate in front of us. And he always looked at us with chagrin because we weren't putting anything in. And what he didn't know is there was a money order sitting in the, offering plate we dropped it in the plate when we got there yeah without our name on it we put an anonymous money order in there to support the building and that stuff you know so um and we never filed it on our taxes we gave secretly and we didn't we didn't try to get back from god on our taxes you know so uh, that was just us that's the way we viewed it and still do oh that's um, exactly right there was one church that I was a part of it was a it was an old cowboy church here in, in Bastrop County that I think they did it right. They had a giving station or a tithing station, whatever I forget what they called it. But anyways, it was a little place secluded in the building, like around the corner, so people just don't see. Like you just go up there and you do what you want, and they don't see what you're doing. That's you know they had that right as far as that goes, in my opinion. 
Yeah. But I, I put my foot down a long time ago and said, no, we are not going to claim what we give to our congregation on our taxes because that is that 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 gives motive outside of wanting to give to the congregation. Yeah, and that, that's you know that's how Melanie and I view it. But that, that's our principle. We're not going to force that on anyone else. But that's our principle as well. But uh, I think the main thing is is that God is yes, He wants you to be a giver and He wants you to do it and be generous as as you possibly can be even if you don't make much you can still be generous your percentage is not going to be as big as the next guy but it is just like Yeshua said you've given more if you've given of your life you know Yeshua did say that um but um I'm not going to compel people that's why we don't talk about it you know this is we're talking about it in the context of a study and I'm sitting here telling you don't tie <laughs> You know, and and if I wanted to, I could benefit myself just like a lot of people do and say, you got to give it to me, you know. Um, but I want people giving because they're because God told them to, you know, and, and because they're happy to do it, you know. Um, anyway. Geez, where were we? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Using a kid in his mother's milk before we started. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Talk about jumping jacks. Well, we actually are in chapter 24, I think, uh, of Shemot. I'm still looking for that uh, verse, and I can't find it, where Yeshua said that she gave more than any of them. Whatever. Um, the verse we've referenced a few times, I just uh, I'm not finding it. Uh, well, it's in one of the gospels. I just have to About think. The mite, the woman gave her mite. Yeah, the widow's mite. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a King James reference. If you're gonna look for it, <laughs> it'll give me the verse though. Yeah. I guess I'm just not putting the proper keywords for it to come up on my Google gadget. It's it's in the Gospel of Mark 12, 41 through 44, and Luke 21, 1 through 4. Yeah. We've got a few more minutes. Do you want to? I mean, we basically wrapped up 23. Sure. So, so I'm not going to get into 24 yet because that's a whole other topic. So if there's anything else you want to talk about that we've talked about tonight about the fence, perhaps that's the main thing I want you to take away. And um, in my view, the Christian community has built their own fence mm -hmm. and uh, done basically the same thing and and tertullian is the guy that started that the pharisees started it in the jewish community and tertullian started it in uh the christian community by basically saying that i think it was him that all all of the all of the old testament he was the one that coined the phrase old testament new testament right and uh all of the old testament is allegory and it's not meant for uh, us today it's not meant for the church we are the new israel replacement theology and and all of that 
And uh, uh, so that in, in effectively the Catholic church created a fence and Protestants escaped from that one and created their own <laughs> using yeah. kind of the material from the previous fence. Right. Yeah. It's the same thing. We got this little bar where let's go put our own dead gum fence. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll build our own corral and we're, and we're, you know, and they may be, I'm not going to be so judgmental as to say who's not in the pasture of the Messiah. That's not my place to decide. All I can say is I'm not going to put myself behind your fence. I'm going to gamble on the hills with the Messiah. I like that. Yeah. We could gamble. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just being funny. <laughs> G-A-M-B-O-L. <laughs> Different word. <laughs> um, so, yeah, replacing the commandments of God with man-made commandments is egregious to me. And obviously the big one that we talked about that got us there was, you know, we talked about the dairy and the kosher laws and all that, but the big one was the name. Yes, yeah, so I like the way you say that because a lot of times I talk to different folks and, and like if someone wants to, I don't know, I'm not going to give examples, but let's just say there's times when I tell people I'm not going to submit myself under your authority because I don't agree with what you're preaching. I don't agree with your doctrines that you that you live by. But I think that's a nicer, better way to say it is like I'm not going to allow myself to be fenced in by your by the fence you put around God's word. That's right. You know, I, I like the way you, I like the way you coined that. All right. Anything else? All right. Avinu in the name of your son, Yahweh Yeshua Mashiach, we do give thanks for all of your goodness toward us and for your word. We ask, Abba, that you clarify any confusion. Um, we ask that you cause us to walk freely in your commandments, just the way that the, the Psalm 119 tells us to, um, and not be encumbered by men's traditions and laws. Um, and we ask you to make that clear for anyone watching after the fact that uh, we have biblical traditions that we observe. They're not man-made and they do not violate your Torah or abrogate your Torah or, or change your word uh, in the way that you have instructed us to practice your word. And that is what we seek is that we do what you tell us to do, how you tell us to do it to the best of our ability. And we ask for the guidance of your breath, your Ruach HaKodesh, to, to get us there. And we thank you for it because we trust you are doing that. We ask you to be with all of our congregation uh, in the meantime until we assemble again on Shabbat. And we ask you to join us there. Amen. 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 Ani. Shatiti. 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 Te. Oh, I Good job, Tracy. <laughs> yes. Metsuyan. Metsuyan. Applause. Say it again. Te No, you don't do me somewhere. Hot or cold. Was the tea hot or cold? Cham is hot. Car is cold. Oh, uh, cham. 
What? Tracy, you had ham? What? <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to listen to this week's Torah study class. In the description, you'll find all the links to our website and social media content. Please make sure you're subscribed to our podcast as we can be found on all major podcast platforms. If you feel compelled to support this ministry, please feel free to do so by donating via the Get the Word Out link in the description. All proceeds go toward growing this platform and the Mikdash Mayat ministry. Till the next time, we pray God blesses you with shalom in the name of Yahweh Yeshua Mashiach.